For our sermon today, we're picking up where we left off. We've been in Genesis, right, sort of working our way through creation, then the fall. We're really picking up right where we left off. Uh, we were in Genesis chapter 3 last week, looking at the fall, right, that whole story. And now we're in chapter 4, literally the verse after where we finished up. Uh, and we're going to be looking at the well-known, certainly I'm sure it's familiar to you, well-known story of Cain and Abel. And this is Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And we're just going to dive right in. I'm going to read this for us. And, and instead of reading it all up front, I'm going to just sort of go through verse by verse, as I often do, and sort of pause at times, do sort of the teaching up front. And then, as always, we'll apply to our lives what we have learned. So let's read. This is Genesis chapter 4, starting at verse 1, the story of Cain and Abel. And it says, Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. And a little more literally, what it really says is, with the help of the Lord, I have acquired a man. And in fact, the name Cain means acquired, a sort of acquired one. It's a very appropriate name, right? She sort of acquired, gained possession of this little child, this baby boy. And so what does she name him? Oh, acquired, this one that has been sort of given to me, whom I have acquired. So a very appropriate name. And then going on, reading on verse 2, later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. And Abel also has sort of a very appropriate and sort of prophetic name in a sense. Abel means, uh, actually very literally in a sense, it means breath or vapor. Uh, that's sort of what the word means. But sort of figuratively, it has a little bit of a range of meaning. But certainly here it means fleeting. Right? And this is the word actually, Abel here, um, this is the word that's used, think of Ecclesiastes. If you're familiar with that book and all over the place, your translation might be different, but it might be vanity, vanity, or vanity of vanities, or meaningless, meaningless. We see that all over in Ecclesiastes. That's the same word here, the word, the name here, in fact, for Abel. And as I said, it means vapor breath, but it can mean sort of fleeting or sort of meaninglessness or nothingness, or pointless. It sort of has a range of meaning, but here it's in the sense of fleeting. And so she names her child fleeting, right? Whether she sort of knew what would come of him or not, I don't know, but it winds up to be very accurate as a name because his life is indeed very much fleeting. We know sort of how the story goes that Cain, of course, kills Abel, and so his life is fleeting. So Abel's a very appropriate name for him. And reading on, it says, now Abel kept flocks, so he's a shepherd, and Cain worked the soil, right? He's a farmer. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And sort of at first glance, this may not seem so bad. Okay, you know, that, that's good job, Cain. That's a good thing to do, right? To, to bring an offering to the Lord. But if we sort of compare it to Abel's offering, we'll see there's a little bit of a distinction. And it's not the distinction of, well, one is sort of, the yield of, of the crops, right, from, from the soil, and the other's a matter of being a shepherd. And I've seen people say, oh, you know, you know, commentators, well, maybe God has preference for the occupation of shepherding rather than being a farmer. That's by no means the case. But rather, it's really what is brought, not in the sense of sheep versus, or, or some sort of animal versus, uh, of course, some sort of, you know, vegetation. But it's rather a matter of the quality of it, and we'll see this, right? So at first, Cain's offering may not seem terrible. He brings some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, but what does it say for Abel? But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn 
of his flock, right? The distinction here isn't, well, animal versus plant, but rather bringing sort of the average, which is what Cain does. It's not that he brings the worst of the worst. It doesn't say he sort of brings the leftovers, sort of the fruit from, from all of his labors that sort of, you know, marred and doesn't look so great. But he just sort of brings what's average, you know, sort of the run-of-the-mill produce that he has yielded through his labor and toil. But that's not what Abel does, right? Abel doesn't just sort of bring some regular old animal as an offering, but he brings, right, the fatty portions, the best of the best, right? He brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock, right? He recognizes this is God himself, right? And what does he deserve? He deserves the best, the best of the best. He's not going to show up with some sort of average offering that's just sort of typical amongst his flock. No, he's going to go and bring the fattiest portions, the best of the firstborn of the flock, and that's what he gives to the Lord. So Cain sort of gives average, and Abel, of course, gives the best of the best. And what do we read? It says, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, right? That's probably what we'd expect, very naturally. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor, right? Because Cain didn't bring the best of the best as God deserved, but just sort of run-of-the-mill average, and God deserves better than that. So what's Cain's response? Not the greatest response. So Cain was very angry, is what it says, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Right at this point, you'd sort of hope if, you know, if the story went in a better direction that Cain recognizes the error of his ways and sort of the next time it's time to come and bring some sort of offering to the Lord that he would go and bring the best, right, of the fruit of the soil, right? The very best, the cream of the crop. That's what he should have done, repented of his ways, recognized the error of it, and of course done what was right. But he does quite the opposite. Instead, sort of sin snowballs here, it sort of spirals out of control. And we see that certainly with sin uh, in our lives, in people's lives, where sin often leads to further sin and further sin that can sort of get out of control. And of course, this is the case with Cain here. So reading on, verse 8, now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Not that God's perplexed and confused and, oh, I don't know where he is, right? Of course, God knows exactly what's taken place, but this is sort of a little bit of a leading question, right? Where's Abel? What's the deal? What's happened? And what's Cain's response? You know, I don't know. So just an outright lie. I don't know. And then he sort of tries to deflect or justify himself a little bit. I don't know. He replied, am I my brother's keeper? Right? And often I, I think our natural response is to say, yes, yes, you are your brother's keeper. That's sort of the expected response. But I think we have to understand um, sort of in its context what exactly is Cain saying here. And the language of what's being used to sort of translate it into today's English is, am I my brother's bodyguard? That's sort of effectively what he's saying. Uh, the word used here is the same word used uh, for someone who is sort of guarding a city. You can imagine some sort of watchman or guard, guard at the city gates or up on the city wall, and he's there sort of 24-7, or maybe they're rotating shifts, but sort of 
perpetually, in a sense, watching over something and guarding and protecting. It's also used of shepherds as well as they're sort of perpetually watch, watching over and guarding the flock. And I would say that isn't really, in all of its fullness, the role of a brother, right? It's not that he's 24-7 to be glued to Abel as a bodyguard, in a sense, and always be there defending him, watching over him, protecting him. And so Cain thinks he's sort of being all smart. He sort of gets a little bit extreme here, hyperbolic, and surely, uh, you know, I'm not my brother's keeper, right? But in a sense, as he tries to sort of deflect or justify himself, he sort of sets the trap for himself because, in a sense, he brings up the whole topic of really this role of caring for another, and in particular here, right, he sort of brings up the topic of a bodyguard who cares for and watches over somebody, and sort of, in a sense, while you're bringing up that subject of caring for another, watching over another, sort of your responsibility to another, there's the reality in a sense that, yes, maybe, Cain, you're not a bodyguard for your brother, but you are indeed his brother, and there is still a responsibility, as you brought up this fact of, of sort of watching over another, there is still for a brother a responsibility regarding the welfare of your brother, that you are still to care for your brother, watch over your brother, you are responsible in that sense, not to the extent that a bodyguard is, but you are still responsible to a degree. And in fact, this is the very area in which Cain has failed miserably. Not only has he failed to sort of look out for his brother as a brother should, not to say as a 24-7 bodyguard, but still watching out for your brother. Not only have you failed to do that, Cain, but in fact, you're the very one who took his own life. And so as Cain here is sort of thinking he's all wise and I'm sort of deflecting, I'm gonna make myself look good. Hey, I don't know where my brother is. I'm not his bodyguard. Yeah, well, as you're bringing up this matter of watching over someone, you failed in that role. A brother does still have the responsibility to do that, and you have failed in doing that, and you've gone even further than failing in that. You're the very one who took his life. And so that's sort of, in a sense, how God responds here. Right, so Abel, uh, Cain says, I don't know, right? Am I my brother's keeper? And then the Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth, right? So here you have Cain and he works the soil. That's sort of his profession. That's what he does. And God says, it's not going to work so well for you anymore, right? It's not, you know, the, the soil isn't going to bear fruit and crops for you anymore. This is sort of your punishment. And instead, you're just sort of going to wander the face of the earth. And so it's Cain's response. This is verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today, you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. And what does he mean there, right? Even though, you know, sort of the fall's already happened, Adam and Eve, they've been kicked out of the garden, and now they have Cain and Abel, right, uh, as children. Doesn't mean that they don't necessarily have daughters as well, because, of course, later we see that Cain has a wife, and Seth certainly later has a wife. So they have more children than just Cain and Abel, but at least at this point they have certainly Cain and Abel. But so they've been kicked out of the garden, right? But that doesn't mean that God has just so totally left them in the sense of he doesn't show up anymore uh, and make his presence dwell somewhere in, in their midst. But rather, even though they're outside of the garden, God still clearly uh, reveals his presence to Adam and Eve, to Cain and Abel, as he did at this time when they brought their offering, right? As uh, Abel and Cain brought their offerings, one good, one bad. And what Cain is saying is, if you're sort of kicking me out of this place that might be just a little bit outside of the garden, 
of Eden. As you're sort of even now kicking me out of that place, this is a place where you are sort of dwelling to some extent, God, and, and present with us. Right now you're kicking me out and sort of not only will the ground not yield its, its crop, its fruit for me, but in fact now I won't even get to come before you, offer sacrifices, offerings. You're sort of kicking me out of your presence. That's what he's saying there. And he says, and I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. This is one where sort of if you're, you know, maybe if you're reading it quickly, you don't take note of it, but you might be reading this and if you're sort of digging a little deeper, thinking deeply, you might be saying, well, who else is there? Right? Whoever finds me will, will kill me. Well, at this point, it's like you got Adam and Eve, Cain. Well, Abel's not around anymore. Again, there might be some other children who may not be specifically recounted in Scripture, children of Adam and Eve. But you might be thinking, well, who's he worried about? Right? It's not like the whole earth is populated at this point, and he figures wherever I go, someone's going to find me there and kill me. I'd say there's, there's a couple potential interpretations for this. First of all is while in English it says whoever finds me will kill me, it's not so specific uh, in Hebrew, and it could refer not just to a person, but it could refer to animals as well. And so Cain could be thinking, right, you can imagine sort of the Garden of Eden, they've been kicked out of there, but it could be that God has still sort of provided some sort of little refuge and safe place even outside of the Garden of Eden for Adam, for Eve, for their children. And now Cain's thinking, like, you're going to now send me out of that little safe territory into the wild, right, plop me in the middle of it in a sense, and there's all sorts of dangerous animals there, right? Think of it sort of today if you were just sort of to get plucked out of, you know, Westboro here or whatever town you live in and just plop right in the middle of the Amazon and sort of what's your likelihood of survival? You're probably thinking whatever finds me, whether it's a crocodile, whether it's some anaconda or who knows what, it's going to kill me. And so that's very possibly what he has in mind here, sort of you're sending me off into this dangerous land and whatever I bump into, right, some sort of large animal, it's going to kill me. So it doesn't have to be whoever. It doesn't have to be translated that, that way. It could be whatever finds me will kill me. The other possibility is Cain could just have in mind the fact that, well, you know, Adam and Eve, they're, you know, mom and dad, they're going to have some more children as they do. They'll have Seth and, you know, he'll have children and so forth and so on. And so at some point, right, they know what I've done, right? Word sort of gets out about these things. And if I ever bump into them or their children or children's children, what are they going to do to me, the one who murdered Abel? And so he could still be concerned about people sort of on down the road as, of course, Adam and Eve's offspring sort of progressively fills the earth, and Cain can still be around for that, and he might be concerned about that. Could be either one, could be a little bit of both. But anyway, reading on, verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. Right, and here we see, right, Cain, in, in reality, he deserves the worst of the worst. It doesn't mean he doesn't get, get punishment. He certainly does. But at the same time, even as this punishment, we just see God's graciousness in the midst of it. That he could, could sort of say, you know, off with your head, you're done, end of story. And instead, it's sort of, no, I'll still spare your life, but there will be consequences. You know, the ground won't bear crops for you. You'll have to sort of leave this place and wander about. Uh, but even still, as Cain's sort of worried about his welfare, he's, you know, and someone or something is going to kill me, God is still gracious and says, no, 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 I'll make provision for you, I'll still watch over you, there'll still be protection for you. And so, even as someone here, Cain in particular, has done a terrible thing, we still see just sort of the great graciousness and mercifulness of God, even in this story here. But then reading on, last verse here, so Cain went out from the presence, from the Lord's presence, and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. 
And just a little note there, Nod means wandering, so quite appropriate, right? He's this restless wanderer now. That's sort of his punishment, kicked out from where he was living and now to wander the face of the earth. And where does he go? Well, to the land of wandering, very naturally. But so now sort of, I want to kind of come back and sort of look at this and say, you know, big picture, right? Certainly you could go in a lot of different directions as, as we're looking at this passage. You could talk about murder and so forth. You could talk about sin and how it sort of very naturally snowballs and spirals out of control. You could sort of go in different directions. But what I want to really focus on here is the offerings that the two brought. So sort of coming back right there to, to verse 3, verse 4, uh, the two different offerings. And one which is sort of not terrible, but just sort of average, right? Cain shows up, right, with these plants, right, whatever this, the fruit of the soil is here that he happens to bring, and it's just sort of run-of-the-mill average, right? And then on the flip side, there's Abel who brings the best of the best, right? Those great fatty portions from the firstborn of the flock, he brings the best. And a lesson that we can take out of this and we ought to learn is the fact that God deserves nothing but the best, right? Cain sort of learned that the hard way. He didn't realize that at first, and, and certainly even after he came to, into that knowledge, right, as his was not accepted by God, his offering, but Abel's was. He didn't repent of it and sort of change his ways by any means, right? The reality is we ought to recognize this fact. We ought to learn from Abel, certainly, follow his leading and recognize that God deserves the best of the best. He deserves the very best from us in our lives. And I think it's all too often in various sort of spheres of our life to sort of give God either average rather than sort of our very best or the best of the best. Or even I would say all too often, maybe we're even a little bit worse than Cain. I don't mean that we go killing our brothers or sisters or whatever, but worse than Cain in that I think sometimes we even don't just give God the average in a sense, but we actually give him the scraps, sort of the leftovers. And I think even as followers of the Lord, and even though we love him, all too often we sort of fall prey to that in various ways. And so I want to sort of talk about sort of different aspects of our lives and ways in which we're really called to give God the best, but maybe we don't always do so in our lives. And one of them comes sort of is regarding the time that we spend with God. Sort of think of that, that time each and every day that we ought to spend with the Lord, sort of that quiet time with Him in prayer, in His Word, just sort of soaking up His presence and delighting in Him and being with Him. And I think all too often, right, that, that should sort of be our favorite part of every day. That should be something that we yearn for, that we desire to experience. Uh, we should want to spend that time with the Lord. And our mindset should sort of be, we want to give God the best of the best in that regard. So that's our top priority each and every day. That should be our top priority. I need to spend time with God. I need to be with Him and give Him the best of my time. And yet I think all too often, I fall prey to this at times. I'd imagine probably all of us do at various times. We can sort of each and every day get caught up in just sort of the busyness of life. You know, we get up and there's stuff to do. You know, you've got to get ready. Maybe you've got to get the kids off to school. If you have kids, if you're like me, you know, get the kids off to school, get them ready, get off to work, all sorts of stuff to do for work. And, you know, then maybe even still, you know, you get home from work, but there's things to do, dinner or kids or stuff around the house or whatever it might be. And all too often our mindset is sort of, I have my agenda and all of the things I need to do. And then, God, if I happen to have a little bit of spare time left over at the end of the day, well, then you can have that. You can sort of, God, have the leftovers, the scraps that remain. 
And that's not being like Abel. That's not giving God the best of the best. That's, that's, as I said, arguably even worse than Cain, who just sort of gives average. In a sense, we're saying, God, you just get the leftovers of my time each and every day. You're not the priority, but you're sort of the afterthought, and you get the scraps. And I'd say that shouldn't be the way uh, we sort of see our time with the Lord, where if there's some time left over, then I'll spend time with you, Lord. But rather, that should be our priority, what we yearn for most each and every day, and God should get the best of us. He should be that top priority. But I'd say we don't just sort of fall prey to giving either average or sort of the scraps in regard to our time with the Lord, but I'd say even in regard to tithing, in regard to giving toward the Lord financially, not that sort of money's my favorite thing to talk about, but I think that often that is a reality that, that certainly I'd say that probably for some of us here, we sort of do give God the best. And, and certainly if that's the case for you, then great. Certainly celebrate that fact that you're faithful in that regard, where maybe the way you approach giving to the Lord is, hey, before you even think about any other bill that you have, you know, the mortgage, whatever it is, before you even think about that, it's sort of like, no, I'm going to write God the check, I'm, or write it out to the church, of course, but it's to the Lord, it's given to him, right? God's going to get the money first, I'm going to give to him first, he gets the best of the best, he's the top priority. And maybe there are some who do that, and that's certainly great, and that's what we ought to do. But I think, again, all too often we sort of fall into the mindset that's a little bit more like Cain, where giving to the Lord isn't the top priority. Instead, our thought is, well, you know, I have to cover the mortgage. I have, you know, the car payment. Uh, i got to save for retirement. Certainly got to put food on the table. And God cares about all those things, and I'm not saying that they're not important. But sort of those become the priorities. And maybe it's, you know, and certainly I need a nice vacation this year, so i got to save for that. And you sort of plan everything else out, budget everything else out, and then it's sort of, well, now what's left? What's sort of the leftovers, the scraps that remain? And then we all too often say, okay, now based on that, here's what I'm going to give to you, Lord. And again, that's not, that's not following Abel's leading and saying, ah, I'm going to give God the best of the best, those fatty portions from the firstborn. But rather that's saying, nope, arguably worse than Cain again. Not just average, but God, I'll give you whatever just sort of happens to be remaining after I cover all of the expenses that I have and all those other priorities of mine, I'll sort of give you from the scraps and the leftovers, right? And that isn't honoring God. That isn't giving God the best of the best. But it's not just sort of in regard to sort of that quiet time with the Lord or in regard to how we give that maybe we fall prey to sort of um, following Cain's leading and failing to give giving God the, the best. But I'd say we can even do it, I think, at times in, in regard to ministry and, and how we serve God as we maybe volunteer in church or even if I think of for myself, right? It would be tragic for me if my mindset as a pastor is sort of like, oh, when I come here and I'm preparing to, to preach on Sunday mornings, I don't have to give God my best, right? That would be an awful mindset to have. You know, I'll just sort of, I'll just throw something together Saturday night, you know, no big deal, or Sunday morning, I'll just sort of throw something together and wing it, and hopefully it comes out all right and, and it's fine, right? That shouldn't be my mindset. That's sort of failing to give God the best, but rather my mindset should be, as I carry out this role of being a pastor, as I preach every Sunday, as I'm preparing for those sermons as well. And putting them together, I should be saying, I want to give God my best. I want to give him my all. I don't want to just put in a, a low level of effort or even just sort of an average or mediocre level. I want to give it my all, my everything, put all of myself into it and do it to the very best of my ability because it's for the Lord. It's in service to him and, and he deserves nothing but the very best. Right, or if I think of the, you know, just to use an example, right? Think of the worship team, and I thank Richard and Wayne and certainly Ralph, who often joins in as well and, and fills in. And, and right, the mindset there, and I think that this is their mindset, is 
you know, we're not just going to throw this together Sunday morning or, or last minute. But, you know, we're serving the Lord here. They're certainly serving the church, but this is done in service to the Lord. We're going to lift up our voices and, and praise and worship and honor God. And again, he deserves nothing but the very best. So we're not going to just sort of throw it together at the last minute, not rehearse, not practice, but rather they have rehearsals, right? They do encourage certainly practicing throughout the week so that in a sense they can be at their very best, right? Not for their glory, not so they can just throw a great performance and we just all applaud them and what a great job that they did. That's not the mindset, but this is for the Lord. And what does God deserve? Our very best. And so we're going to invest all of ourselves and put in all the effort that we can to doing that. Right, and that should be the mindset, or, or whatever it is. Maybe volunteer teaching the kids, right, in Sunday school. Again, I'd hope that it's not sort of like, uh, maybe I'll get up 30 minutes early on Sunday, take a quick peek at whatever I have to teach the kids, and hopefully it turns out okay. Again, no, I hope our children deserve better, but also God deserves more. We ought to say, whatever I'm doing in ministry, you know, whether it's preaching, whether it's being part of the worship team, whether it's teaching the kids, whatever it might be, our mindset should be nothing but the best will do because it's for the Lord and he deserves our very best, right? We can't settle for mediocrity and say, yeah, as long as it comes out as like a B or something, you know, a, a passing grade, that's okay, right? But we need to say, no, we need to give God our all, right? And that doesn't mean that everything we do, we do you know, as a small church, it's going to look like, you know, a church of 10,000 people with tons of staff, and they can do everything all buttoned up and looking perfect. I know that, that that's a standard that maybe we can't attain. I don't mean that, but it should really be, in a sense, it's more about the heart and the fact that we are giving it our all. Whatever my best is, I need to give my best in service to the Lord, right? Whatever your best is, you need to give that very best to the Lord because it's just what God deserves. He deserves our very best, pouring all of ourselves into it. But again, it's not just sort of serving in ministry, but in reality, it's every sphere of life. If, if we realize every bit of our lives, our very existence, every moment of our lives is ultimately for God, for Him, for His glory, then we should recognize that in literally every moment of our lives and everything that we do, we ought to be giving our all for the Lord. Whatever He wants of us in that moment, we ought to be doing that to the best of our ability for Him. So if that's sort of as we go about our daily lives and we recognize, hey, we're called to love others, right, in a Christ-like way. Well, are we sort of setting the bar low and saying, as long as I'm not, like, terrible to people, that's okay, and I'm doing all right. Or are we going to say, no, God deserves the very best. If he's calling me to love other people, I need to do it. I, I need to be faithful in that regard. I need to do that and do it to the best of my ability. No, we're imperfect. We're fallen, right? We're not going to do everything perfectly. We know that. But nonetheless, sort of striving to give God our best, our all. Or even as we think of sort of God-given roles that he's given to us, right? It's Mother's Day. Thinking of maybe you're a mom or, you know, a wife or husband or father. And God's given us a significant role, right? Whatever that might be as a husband, wife, father, mother. To say, God, you've given me this role, this significant role. And I can't live that out with mediocrity as though sort of I'm going to set the bar really low and say, as long as I'm better than like half the people out there, at least I'm better than more than half. That's not bad. That's okay. Right? But rather we should say, no, this is, this is for you. You know, it doesn't mean it's not for your spouse as well or your kids. But fundamentally, it's for God. It's in service to him. And I need to be faithful to him and give him my all and all that I do. So if I'm a father, which I am, if I'm a husband, which I am, then I need to give my all in that. And I think all too often, you know, I, I think it just sort of comes as part of our fallen sinful nature. It's easy to sort of want to lower the standards 
make ourselves feel good, you know, coast a little bit where we are rather than challenging ourselves. And I, I don't want this to be sort of a sermon that just sort of beats up on us and, and it's like, oh, we're terrible, you know, we don't give God our all in everything and we should just leave here, you know, hanging our heads low and terrible, rather just to encourage us, right? We're always going to fall short in this life. We know that. We're not perfect. We'll be made perfect one day and that will be glorious, but just because we're not perfect yet doesn't mean we shouldn't strive to grow and mature and, and in every situation more and more in an ever-increasing way, give God our best and serve him faithfully in that regard. And so that's just what I want to challenge us to do and really encourage us to do, right? We want to live out our lives in a way that really honors God, that really glorifies him. And that means not settling for sort of mediocrity. As long as I'm an okay Christian with sort of okay degree of faithfulness, then I feel okay with myself, and that's fine. But say, no, I want to honor God in everything. I want to grow. I want to mature. Not, not for my own glory so I can just sort of pat myself on the back and, hey, Steve, you're doing well. You're a pretty good Christian. You're better than most. You're doing great. That, that's not the mindset, but rather, I just want to honor God in every moment, in everything that I do. And that means giving my all in everything for him, for his glory. And I just want to challenge us to really faithfully live that out, to learn from this story, not to be like Cain, not to give sort of what's average and say, hey, God, hope that that's pleasing in your sight rather than say, no, God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like Abel. I'm going to give you the best of the best, and may that certainly honor you and glorify you and be pleasing in your sight. So let's do that. Let's be like Abel. Hopefully not dying young. I don't mean that, but be like Abel, and of course, give the best of the best in all things for the Lord, for his glory. Amen. And let's pray. Lord God, Every bit of our lives is for you. It's all about you. We have a way at times of sort of making things about ourselves and being caught up in ourselves, our own agenda, what we want to do. And all too often you become secondary or an afterthought and we fail to give you our all, our everything. And that shouldn't be the case. May we learn from this story. May we not be like Cain bringing the leftovers or the scraps or what's average, but recognize that you are God and you deserve nothing but the very best from us, your people. And may we strive to live that out faithfully, not, not on our own strength. We're not going to bring that about just on human strength, but Holy Spirit, may you work within us, bring about the change that we need that we might be able to, in an ever-increasing way, live that out give you our best in everything for you, for your kingdom, for your glory. In your name we pray. Amen.